Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Promises, promises. That phrase we use when someone says something to us that we know they won't follow through with. It hurts to be on the receiving end of broken promises, doesn't it? Or when someone overpromises something and completely underdelivers. We see it all the time in government with politicians promising one thing but then revoking that promise when it becomes too inconvenient. And it's nothing new. Going back to 1928 when Herbert Hoover was running for president, his campaign promised prosperity for everyone. And they had a slogan that they used and it was this, a chicken in every pot and a car in every backyard to boot. I guess cars were parked in the backyard back then. But we know that that was a promise he couldn't keep because less than eight months after he took office, the bottom of the stock market fell out and the nation was plunged into what became known as the Great Depression. Or what about in 1988 when George H.W. Bush said during his, ex- his acceptance speech those famous words, read my lips, no new taxes. Less than two years after he made that promise, he admitted that ta- uh, increase in tax revenue was necessary, so he signed them into law. So we see broken promises every which way we turn. It doesn't shock us when politicians do it. Uh, Those promises that are made out there in the world might not matter a whole lot to us. But what about when those promises become deeply personal? When you stood there on your wedding day, dressed in your beautiful white gown, and from the man across the aisle, you heard the words, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, only for him to break that vow not long after. Or when your loved one struggling with addiction says to you, I've seen how much this hurts you. It won't happen again, I promise. Or the unspoken promise a father makes when he has children, tells them he loves them, and then seemingly out of the blue completely abandons them. See, being on the receiving end of broken promises is painful, and it's all too common. And we have to be quick to admit that every single one of us in this room has probably caused someone else pain because of promises we made but couldn't keep. We're always making and breaking promises, even little things like I'll get to that project next week or I'll call you tomorrow or I'll be there for your soccer game. See, and on and on the list goes. The simple truth, though, is that we live in a promise-breaking world. We've been hurt by other people's broken promises and we've inflicted pain on others by saying one thing and doing another thing. See, but there is one who stands above the dysfunction and disgrace of this lie-infested world who says, you can trust me. 
I am good, I am loving, I am honest, I've never once broken a vow, I've never once made a promise I couldn't keep, and you better believe that every commitment I make I will see through to its glorious completion. See, that's the God that we worship. That's the God of the Bible. The testimony of Scripture shows time and again that everything God says, he does. That's why we praise him with titles like Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper. And here's the thing. See, there's no greater display of God's faithfulness to keeping his promises than that of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees all of God's promises. The resurrection of Jesus proves that God is able, that he's powerful enough to keep every single one of his promises. So let's jump into our final passage in Mark's gospel. The culmination of everything he's written so far in the last 15 chapters, the culmination of everything we've been preaching and studying through since the beginning of the year. So we're going to, you can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 1. Um, if you, by the way, if you don't have your Bibles, we have that on the Bayside Chapel app. Just search for that in the app store. And on there is also the ability to take notes and fill in the blanks. And there's a discussion guide that uh, each pastor makes for every sermon that can help you dive deeper into uh, that sermon and that passage. So Mark chapter 16, verse 1, says this, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So the Gospels teach us that Jesus died on the cross on a Friday afternoon. He was buried in the tomb that evening, and his body remained in the tomb all day Saturday. Now we come to this passage, and it's the early dark hours of Sunday morning. This small band of godly women who witnessed the gruesome and unjust execution of their leader just a couple nights earlier, they make their way through the still, dark streets of Jerusalem to find the body of Jesus for one final act of love. This act of anointing Jesus' body was just that. It was an act of love. See, the Jews didn't embalm the bodies of the dead. Instead, they anointed the bodies with spices and perfumes and and scented oils. And they did this uh, to try combating the, the awful stench of a body decaying in the Middle Eastern heat. Verse two. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So Mark tells us that, that the sun had risen. The darkness that the women left in had now turned to light as, as the sun began to crest the horizon. So they make their way to the tomb of the one they all believed was the Messiah. The one for whom they had left everything behind. The one who promised life but was now himself dead. You can imagine what must have been a very complex combination of extreme emotions uh, the ladies were experiencing. Sadness at their master's death, confusion about who, who Jesus of Nazareth really was, anger toward the Romans and the religious rulers, and fear for their own futures. Now there's something that's really important that I don't want us to miss in verse two. See, look at the language Mark uses. He says, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen... They went to the tomb. So when Jesus kicked off his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 32, it says this. It says, That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So, so the gospel of Mark is, is bookended. It's a, you have sundown at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then you have come to chapter 16, verse 2, and you see it says the sun had risen. 
So from that moment on in Mark's uh, gospel from chapter 1 and throughout the rest of the gospel, he repeatedly uses this language of nighttime, this language of evening, because he's trying to highlight the darkness that Jesus came to triumph over. So you see all these passages all throughout Mark's gospel. I'll read some of them. Mark 1.35 says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Mark 4.35, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Mark 6.47, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Mark 11.19, And when evening came, they went out of the city. Mark 15, 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Then you get to 16, 2, and Mark says, when the sun had risen. See, he sprinkles this language throughout his gospel to signal to us that this moment in human history, this particular Sunday morning, is the dawn of a new day. Mark's cluing us in on the fact that the resurrection is a promise of light for the lost, The resurrection is a promise of light for the lost. Light bursts onto the scene in verse 2, dispelling all the darkness that had been present throughout the gospel. The sun was rising, not just to create another 24-hour day, but the sun was rising to usher in a new era in human history. And Jesus came when the world was dark, on the evening of world history. And when he rose that Sunday morning, death was disarmed and darkness was conquered. As I heard one theologian say, The S-U-N was rising on human history because the S-O-N had risen. Church, the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that we are triumphant because through faith we share in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We don't need to linger in darkness feeling lost and alone and crippled by the effects of sin. God says, and the scripture says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So he beckons us to enter his light by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that moment he saves us is the moment we turn to him in helpless dependence. At that very moment, we call that the moment of salvation or the moment of conversion or the moment of regeneration. At that very moment, scripture says he delivers us from the domain of darkness and he transfers us into the kingdom of his son. That's what happens to us spiritually. We we are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son. So if you're still stumbling around in the darkness, now is the moment to cast yourself on Jesus. Now is the time to cry out to him, save me, Jesus, for I am a sinner lost in the darkness and I need a savior. Now is the time to take the Lord at his word when he says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The resurrection is a promise of light for the lost. So Mark continues his narrative in verse 3. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So whatever the the complex combination of emotions that already existed in these women, you can now add fear and panic and worry to that combination. See, in all of their preparation and, and gathering the spices, everything they needed to anoint the body of Jesus, they suddenly remembered they wouldn't have access to the body. They remembered that there was a huge stone that covered the entryway into the tomb. So they begin to worry that all of their preparations would have been for nothing. They panicked because they desperately wanted to express this one final act of love for Jesus. 
But how were they going to gain access to his body? How in the world was this group of women going to roll away a stone that was about five to six feet in diameter, about a foot wide, a foot thick, and weighing at least a thousand pounds? Even so, they marched forward, carried by their devotion, carried along by their love for Jesus. So Mark continues in verse four. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So as the women came within sight of the tomb, can you imagine their shock all of a sudden when they see that the stone had been rolled away? See, I pictured them teary-eyed and filled with sorrow. And then as they come upon the tomb, they look up and and through their tear-soaked, blurry vision, they see that the huge stone was rolled away out of the deep groove that secured it in place. But what could they make of this? Who rolled the stone away? Did somebody steal the body of Jesus? See, imagine all the questions going through their minds. But here's what I don't want us to miss. See, the very thing that they panicked about turned out not to be a problem at all. That huge, heavy stone they worried so much about was completely removed. And though they weren't even thinking about the possibility of a resurrection at this point, we know the story, and we know really what happened. So these verses teach us something else about the resurrection. They teach us that the resurrection is a promise of triumph for the tearful. The resurrection is a promise of triumph for the tearful. See, when the women reached that place of resurrection, they found their difficulty gone. They didn't quite understand it yet, but God's invisible hand was at work behind the scenes, orchestrating a moment of triumph for these women in mourning. And we're not that unlike the women walking to the empty tomb. It happens so often that, that we get worried about how something's going to work out. We, we, we panic. We, we fear. We wonder in our own way, who will roll away this immovable stone to my problem? Who will roll away the stone to my addiction? Who will roll away the stone to my marital struggles? Who will roll away the stone to my dark depression and my crippling anxiety? Who will roll away the stone to the guilt and shame of my terrible hidden past? See, the answer to all of these questions is to look up. Mark says, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. See, the situations that are impossible for us are possible for God. The struggles that are overwhelming to us are puny to him. If God can roll away the largest stone of sin and death that separates us from him, you better believe that he can roll away any stone. So instead of hanging your head low, and surrender to the things in your life that loom so large. Look up. Instead of trying to push aside those immovable things in your own strength, look up. Look up in faith through the eyes of the resurrected Jesus and you won't see stones or darkness or tears. Instead, you'll see salvation and light and triumph. See, Jesus is inviting you to gaze upon the empty tomb and to trade your tears for his triumph. He's inviting you to trust his promise when he said that he will comfort you in your affliction. He's inviting you to trust him when he said that you can cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The resurrection is a promise of triumph for the tearful. So the women come within sight of the tomb. They see that the stone rolled away and they hurry to the tomb. Verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. 
So, so you can picture the women looking into the tomb, gripped by panic because they realized the body of Jesus was gone. Right? Maybe some grave robbers came along and stole the body. Maybe the, the Romans or the Jewish authorities had it removed. Whatever doubts or worries they had, though, were short-lived because their eyes quickly landed on a young man dressed in white sitting on the right side of the empty grave. Now, we know that this young man is an angel. We know that from the other gospel accounts. So you can imagine him sitting there patiently, smiling, waiting for the women to come. Because the fact is, the stone needed to be rolled out of the way, not so Jesus could come out, but so the women could be let in, so they could see the empty grave. And then when they see this angel who looked like a young man, says they were alarmed. That's a word that means like completely dumbfounded. The angel obviously picks up on their panic, and he says to them what angels always seem to say when they reveal themselves to a human. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So the women entered that, that tomb, that place of death. They panicked and afraid. But immediately the angel tells them, don't be alarmed. Do not be afraid. Don't panic. There's nothing to worry about. I know why you came. You came to anoint the body of Jesus. But he's not here. He's risen. If you don't want to believe me, come, look, here's the evidence. The body's gone. See, it's easy for us to shout in joy and excitement over the reality of the angel's words. But we need to remember that no one has ever, since the beginning of time, ever has seen or heard anything like what these women saw and heard that Sunday morning. No wonder they were afraid. We probably would be too. The women were terrified by the thought that their Messiah was a dead Messiah. They were probably scared for their lives, wondering if the Romans and Jewish leaders were going to come for them next. They're anxious and panicked by the appearance of this brilliant angel sitting on the stone. But the very first words of that Resurrection Sunday are, don't be alarmed. Do not be afraid. See, this is a command for them to stop doing something that they were already doing. They were terrified and anxious and they were told not to be. Why? Because he has risen. He's not here. See, there was no one they needed to fear. There was nothing they needed to panic about because Jesus was raised. So here's another thing that the resurrection teaches us. The resurrection is a promise of peace for the panicked. The resurrection is a promise of peace for the panicked. The women were told not to panic because Jesus had risen. He wasn't in the tomb. So they had no reason to fear. And what a sobering reminder this is for those of us who are subconsciously dominated by fear or worry or anxiety. See, according to current statistics, anxiety disorders are the number one mental health problem in the United States. One study showed that the odds of developing an anxiety disorder has doubled in recent years. There's an article in The Atlantic magazine by an author, Scott Stossel, and he shares openly about his lifelong attempts to deal with his anxiety and his fear. From an early age, he's been what he calls himself a twitchy bundle of phobias, fears, and neuroses. Stossel said that even in those rare moments when he isn't suffering from uh, anxiety, he's battered by worry. And then he wrote this. He said this in the article. He says, here's what I've tried to deal with my anxiety. Individual psychotherapy, 
family therapy, group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, hypnosis, meditation, self-help workbooks, massage therapy, acupuncture, yoga, stoic philosophy, and audio tapes I ordered off a late night TV infomercial, and medication. Lots of medication. Thorazine, Nardal, Boostbar, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Wellbutrin, Effexor, Selexa, Lexapro, Cymbalta, Luvox, Trazodone, Levoxil, Indoral, Centrax, St. John's Wort, Valium, Librium, Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin, also beer, wine, gin, bourbon, vodka, and scotch. <laughs> and he's serious, too. And then he concludes with this statement. He says, here's what worked. Nothing. Listen, I know from firsthand experience that many of us do suffer from chemical imbalances in the brain that medication can help uh, rebalance. But, but I also know from my own experience that medicine cannot provide a remedy to a spiritual problem. Never. So I would suggest to Scott Stossel and to anyone else suffering from anxiety or panic disorders, through the eyes of faith, gaze into the empty tomb of Jesus. Seriously consider the implications of his death. Seriously consider the implications of his resurrection. Then allow the Spirit to reorient your understanding of who Jesus truly is and who he's calling you to be in him. See, of all the people in the world, Christians are the ones who should be the most joyous, the most peaceful, the most steady. Much like the example of Bill and Gloria Gaither, if you know that name. In the late 1960s, while they were experiencing, or while they were expecting the, the birth of their third child, uh, Bill and Gloria Gaither were going through a traumatic time in their lives. He, Bill was recovering from about uh, uh, mononucleosis, and they, along with their church, were the objects of accusation and belittlement. Gloria was experiencing a time of torment, including fear of the future, fear of bringing a child into this crazy, messed-up world. As Gloria sat alone in a darkened living room, panicked and, and fearful, the Lord suddenly sent what she calls a calm peace to her, a calm and peaceful rest. And from that moment forward, the power of the resurrection of Jesus affirmed itself in their lives once again, and the peace and joy they experienced began to overcome and take precedent over their frightening circumstances. Then out of that experience was born the song, Because He Lives. Because he lives. Listen to the words if you're not familiar with that song. Lyrics are, God sent his son, they called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But greater still, the calm assurance the child can face uncertain days because he lives. And then one day, I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. So church, whatever it is that keeps you up at night, whatever causes you to panic, whatever causes you to fear, whatever causes you to worry, I encourage you to recall the first words of that Resurrection Sunday. Do not be afraid. 
Because he lives, you can trust his promise when he says that everlasting joy will be upon your head and that you will obtain gladness and joy. Because he lives, you can trust his promise when he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. The resurrection is a promise of peace for the panicked. So, after an attempt to alleviate the women's fears, and after they hear Jesus is no longer dead in the tomb, the angel gives the ladies some marching orders. Verse 7. He says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you, just as he promised. Now, the last time the disciples were mentioned was in the Garden of Gethsemane during Jesus' arrest. Mark tells us there in chapter 14, it says, and after that, they all fled him. They all left him and fled. So the disciples deserted Jesus, and they spent the last few days in hiding. They were hiding because of fear of what the Romans or uh, Jewish leaders might do if they caught them, but they're also hiding in shame because they abandoned the one that they claimed allegiance to. See, even though they promised Jesus they'd give their lives for him and never disown him, when Jesus needed them the most, they abandoned him. They ran away. They failed him. They'd fallen away from their commitment to him and broke their promises to him. As if that wasn't enough, Peter outright, den outright denied Jesus. And if you see how the angel mentions Peter by name, he says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Why is Mark singling out Peter here? Well, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Peter was the one who was the boldest in saying that he would never disown Jesus, never. And yet, not only did he run away with the rest of the disciples, but he publicly denied Jesus three more times. So the last mention of Peter was in the courtyard of the high priest's home where he heard the rooster crow for the second time. And then Mark tells us when this happened, he remembered how Jesus predicted that Peter was going to deny him. And chapter, four, chapter 14 closes with these words. It says, Peter broke down and wept. And that's the last mention of him. See, if you could measure the distance the disciples had fallen away from Jesus, Peter would have fallen the furthest. So maybe without a special mention of his name, Peter might have assumed that the risen Jesus wanted to meet with the other disciples, but not with him. He fell the furthest. There, there was no way Jesus could have forgiven him. And yet, God speaks words of grace and forgiveness through the voice of the angel. Go, tell the disciples and Peter too that he'll see you in Galilee. He's going to be there just as he promised you. See, God wants to make sure that the women pass along the news to the disciples and to Peter so that each one of them will understand that the empty tomb means not only that Jesus is alive, but the empty tomb means that his resurrected life resulted in their complete and total restoration. No matter how great their failure, no matter how far they've fallen, God's forgiveness purchased by the blood of Jesus is available to each one of them. In other words, the resurrection is a promise of forgiveness for the fallen. The resurrection is a promise of forgiveness for the fallen. That same forgiveness available to the disciples on that resurrection Sunday is the same forgiveness available to each one of us. See, Jesus succeeded in doing what he came to earth to do when he went to the cross to suffer for our sins. And we know he succeeded because of his resurrection. His resurrection means that God forgives and pardons all who, co who come to Jesus as their savior from sin and as their leader from life. It doesn't matter 
what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter the words you've said. It doesn't matter the thoughts you've had. It doesn't matter the promises you've broken. It doesn't matter how far you have fallen. Jesus desires to transform you by his grace. Scripture says God delights in showing mercy. He delights in showing mercy. Your failures, however great they might be, are never final when you bring them to the foot of the cross. See, sin brings spiritual death. But Jesus took that death we deserve so we can receive the life we don't deserve. His life, his resurrected life, new life. And there's nothing that breaks the heart of Jesus like seeing people live their lives without his forgiveness. Because in reality, if you're living your life without the forgiveness of Jesus, the life you're living is really a living death. Without the forgiveness of Jesus, there's no such thing as true peace. There's no such thing as true hope. There's no such thing as true joy. I can't remember who said it, but the, the quote was, the world offers promises full of emptiness. Or the resurrection offers emptiness full of promises. See, with the forgiveness of Jesus, there's a fundamental change that takes place within you. Your life suddenly gains eternal value. You become set apart and you stand before God as a saint, no longer a sinner. It's, a, it's an identity change. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint saved by grace. It's an identity change. That's what happens. You stand righteous before God as one of his children because he now views your sins as nailed to the cross. And when he views you, he sees you in the perfect light. He sees his own perfect son. That's forgiveness. And that forgiveness could be yours through faith alone in Christ alone. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the Roman believers. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, the resurrection of Jesus means that you have a second chance. It means that you have a third chance. It means that you have a fourth chance. It means that you have the opportunity to start anew. The resurrection is a promise of forgiveness for the fallen. And then Mark ends his gospel much different than the rest of the gospel's end. After the angel announces to the women that Christ had been raised, he gave them marching orders to tell the men that Jesus would meet them in Galilee. So how did the women respond initially? In verse 8, it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's how Mark's gospel ends. Not with great courage, not with great hope, but with trembling and astonishment and fear. And this might be the very reason why some of our Bible translations include an added ending uh, because about a hundred or so years after Mark's gospel began circulating, uh, people thought, well, this couldn't be the way Mark intended to end his gospel, so let's kind of take pieces from the other gospels and fill in the gaps. But that wasn't what was in the, uh, most, uh, the original uh, manuscripts. See, I love the way one commentator summarized the ending of Mark's gospel. He says this, You may have noticed that something is missing that you might expect in a story about Jesus' resurrection. That something is an appearance by the resurrected Christ. That's not in Mark. 
What else is missing? Not only is Jesus not present at the empty tomb as he is with Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John, there is no appearance to disciples on the road to Emmaus or the assembled disciples as found in Luke. There's no description of Thomas and his doubt. There's no appearance by the shore of the Sea of Galilee where the resurrected Jesus prepares breakfast for some of the disciples. There's no mention of Jesus giving his disciples final instructions to take the Gospel into all parts of the earth before he departs. Mark has none of this. So what is the focus of Mark? He says this, maybe it's expectation and looking ahead. This raises an important question. When is an ending not the end? The answer, when a dead man rises from the tomb and when a gospel ends in the middle of a sentence. Church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Satan has been defeated. Sin no longer has power over you and the curse of death has been reversed. That's something to say amen about. See, the long, dark night of humanity is over. The stone has been rolled away. The sun has risen. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. And there is more to come. It's not over yet. To put it another way, the seeds of of redemption of humanity have been planted. The crops are growing. But the full harvest is coming. In the meantime, between seed time and harvest, Jesus charges us and empowers us by his Holy Spirit to go into the world with his message of light, to go into the world with his message of triumph, to go into the world with his message of peace, his message of forgiveness. So, will you? Will you believe God's promises for yourself? Will you take hold of them? And will you bring them to a dark and hurting world? See, the abrupt ending to Mark's gospel draws us in and leaves us hungry for more. In a way, Mark leaves us with a blank to fill in. It's time for each one of us to take up the pen and write ourselves into that story. This very morning, the voice of the angel is echoing down through the ages and telling you, he is not here, he has risen. So the question is, what will you do now? Will you hold on to the amazing promises of God, knowing Jesus is with you and goes before you? And will you step out into the darkness of the world with the great news of the resurrected Christ? He promised he will return to earth to come again for us. And if there's anything we've learned from Mark's gospel, it's that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees God's promises, even his promise to return in glory and set everything right once and for all.